0: Um, some stories from the Talmud Bavli, from the Babylonian Talmud, um, There's some selected stories that, uh, the first of which deal with um, chassidim, and chassidim, uh, chassidim is, a, is a term I wrote original chassidic stories, chassidim of the Chasidic movement of the 18th century and forward is one phenomenon, uh, but we have a tradition of ma'asai chassidim, of chassidic narratives, stories of, for lack of a better term, pious ones. Um, the from already from the Tanaitic period, right? So from at least uh, maybe around 200 BC to 200 CE, from thereabouts. Um, and I wanted to uh, take a look at how some of those stories function within the Talmud Bible, within the Babylonian Talmud. They're quite interesting stories. So without further ado, we'll jump in. What's your name, sir? What is it, sir? Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Okay. So the first one is from uh, Masechet Brachot, is from Chakti Brachot. This is a Mishnah in the fifth chapter of Brachot, which I know some people in the room have, uh, are actually studying Mishnayot of, of Brachot um, already uh, in the morning here at Risha. Uh, and, it's, and it says as follows, anyone want to read from the Hebrew or the English, whatever you like? Thanks, dude, yeah.
1: Uh, one must pray from a place of COVID-Rosh. The early Chassidim used to wait for an hour and then pray in order to direct their intentions divine.
0: Okay, so I'll pause you already. So it says, one must pray from a place of COVID-Rosh, which I put in, you know, a little parenthesis, uh, quotation marks as a word because it's not sure clear how to translate it. There's a whole discussion in the and Talmud about how to render COVID-Rosh. For now we'll call it a place of, uh, of focus, perhaps, right? It literally, it means. Heaviness of head, uh, lightness of head, kalut rosh is the rabbinic uh, idiom for frivolity. So it's somehow the opposite thereof. But whether this carries a connotation of a certain solemnity with it, or it really, or it means uh, centeredness. Speaking of centeredness, here's Mira, right? Centeredness, or maybe it means, uh, or maybe uh, it means uh, focus. Uh, not, quite, not entirely clear but some sort of internal state that one is obligated to pray from quote unquote okay and then it says that the early Hasidim that they are bing 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 right away here's our Hasidim, the early Hasidim, Hasidim harishonim whoever they were not entirely clear who these people were were they some like coherent sect in the Second Temple times thereafter or are they there's a general description of people who were pious according to the author of the mission I'm not clear they used to wait for an hour and then pray it says they would, we don't even know what they were doing that, that hour exactly for that period maybe, maybe some of us would like to say they're meditating we're not really sure right um, but uh, uh, and then pray in order to direct their attention to God um, it says says elamakom to the omnipresent if you want to render that as God the makom the place. I, I highlight that because in this section of, of tractate Brachot the root the word makom appears in several several times right in the pre- preceding chapters and here as well. Sometimes it seems to refer to a spatial location, yeah, and sometimes it seems to refer to God, right, as the omnipresent, um, and sometimes not entirely clear. So while the previous chapter talked about making sure turning your heart to to the place of the temple, and etc. So here it says to the makom, it's taken to mean the omnipresent, right? The one who is who 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 is the place of the world, but who's who the world is not his place. Uh But but in any event, it's clearly a pun. Okay, so that's the first part of the Mishnah, a charge of having some sort of internal focus or uh, or centering before prayer. And indeed, the early Chassidim used to wait a whole was us call it an hour, and do something or other to get to achieve that inner state. Okay. Actually, the Bab Muhammad says that they would wait for an hour before and an hour after, which means they're spending nine hours a day out of the twenty-four praying, right? Which is some people's idea of heaven, and others' ideas of, others ideas of hell. But uh, in any event, okay, go on.
1: Um, one may not reply even
0: to the greetings of a king, nor may one interrupt even if a snake wraps itself around one thing. And then the Mishnah says, <coughs> A filo ha melech Mishnah says, apparently, trying to, trying to going back to the, to the first clause in the Mishnah, right, where it says you have to have such focus when you pray. You have quote unquote COVID Rosh So the Mishnah then says that uh, one has to have uh, such a degree of focus that even if a king, a melech shoel even if a king would say, How are you doing? Shalom Aleichem, how are you? Lo yeshivenu, one may not reply. It appears to be an sort of the imperative form not the descriptive form. It doesn't seem to be describing the actions of the early pious ones, that they wouldn't reply. we're saying, you reader may not reply, Lo Yeshivanu, right, may not reply. And even if a snake would be wrapped around his, right, the normative, right, his one's ankle, lo Yasik, one may not interrupt their prayer. Okay? Now, that's already quite a high, high standard. And already immediately, you may be, you may be asking yourself, I mean, is that a realistic standard? Right? And if it's not strictly realistic, or which I mean sort of like literally like normative, like meant to be that the snake is wrapped around your leg, then you're supposed to ignore it. And I'm not talking about like your pet little garden snake, I'm saying if you have like you know, a rattlesnake wrapped around you. Uh, you're really not supposed to reply? I thought, like, you know, life chumps almost everything in Judaism, certainly prayer, last time I checked, right? This isn't, you know, idolatry, or this isn't murder, right? So what's going on? So that makes you think, well, on the one hand it's formatted, like the grammatical construction is the imperative, it's like on the mission I always talks and want to tell you to actually do something literally, normatively, halakha, right? Do this, don't do that. On the other hand, it's telling you to do something which sounds more like in the realm of hyperbole, Right? hyperbolically right, you need to be so focused even if a snake wraps itself around your ankle you know, ignore it so right away I think there's a tension in this Mishnah it goes sort of back and forth and then in between like the normative and then the chassidic, as it were right? which is apparently something above and beyond the strictly normative but it's not entirely defined and then you end up somewhere plopped in between and you're not really sure where to find yourself by the time you finish this Mishnah you're scratching your head you're like what do you want me to do what do you not want me to do what here is uh, what here is hyperbole and what here is law not entirely clear. Okay. Okay. So, by the way, I'm going I'm just trying to lay the groundwork. I hope to stop talking so much in a few minutes, but I'm just trying to get the get the information out there. So this is this is the Mishnah we have. Okay. Now, if you look at the Talmud on it, some amazing things happen. Okay. So let's for, for the purposes of this room, you can follow along in the Hebrew in the if you'd like, but I have English everything, and let's, just, let's work out of that for now. So If you turn the page over, the Talmud says this is in tractate Brachot. It's on 32b to 33a we have a couple interesting things that happen. So, um, Michelle, do you want to just read it we read with us from the beginning there? Even if, even if a king, and this is the Talmud citing the Mishnah and then you just know, cursing off of it right away. Okay, Go ahead. Even if a
1: king greets him, he should not answer
0: him. Okay. So if you read that in the Mishnah, you think that means what it says, right? That it, No matter, if any king, right, um, a king from a long time ago and a king from now, right, it uh, doesn't matter. No, no distinction. Don't answer. However, Rabbi Joseph.
1: Rabbi Joseph said this was meant to apply only to Jewish kings. But for a king of another people, he may interrupt.
0: Hmm. So, also, first of all, there's a g- tremendous limitation put off this by the sage Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Joseph, who is a, who is a, uh, who is a Babylonian Amora. Okay, so, in the Talmudic period, sage, he says, First of all, everybody, I'm limiting this or I'm explaining to you the limitation which is inherent in the text itself. This only applies to Jewish kings, but not to non Jewish kings. Not for, you know, I'm living in Sasanian Babylon, you know, he says. So, like, for those guys, you know, you, in, you interrupt. I'm talking, when he says don't interrupt, they mean, you know, if King David, you know, wanders by you while you're praying, so him you ignore. First of all, why would that be?
2: Okay, so but he's king, also inferior to the king you're praying
1: to. to
0: the king to, well, to. the king you're praying. Aren't they both inferior?
2: No, the Aren't king, both
0: the Jewish king and the non-Jewish king inferior? No,
2: the king. I know you're pointing to God. Right. i okay. but aren't <laughs> they? Right. Well, they are. But presumably, the Jewish, you don't
1: interrupt because the king is. You're in the presence of the ultimate king. You don't interrupt to speak to a king. You can. Presume that a Jewish king understands
0: what like Mira says exactly. That's right, so so okay, me- but a non-Jewish king. Okay, so yeah. exactly. So it, the the point where and Meira come up this come up this thesis, right? It's about the fact that ideally, when you're in front of Ba king, as Yehuda says, so you don't interrupt for a king, a human king, of flesh and blood, but only King David, only the Jewish king knows what's going on. He sees you shuckling there, so he'll say, Oh, I get it. You're davening. Okay, it's not as disrespectful to me. You're praying, so that's okay. But the non-Jewish king. He, he's like, well, I don't know what you're doing, you're like rocking back and forth, something's weird with you, but I said, hello, you should respond to me, okay? And, yeah. So
1: how does this, to analogize it, how about a Jewish snake and not Jewish snake? I mean, you have, <laughs> the implication of Rabbi Yosef would now be giving you an out of the snake move also, meaning because he's saying, okay, it, unless it's something that recognizes that you're dominating, you do have an
2: out, you should
0: Right. So the Gemara actually does limit the snake. It says only this type of snake, but not that type, that type of animal, not that type of animal. Not Jewish, not Jewish, not Jewish, non Jewish, but in terms of the, apparently the degree of danger they present. Which means, every, that here's the point, that if once you limit, once you take what Meir and Yochebed said, which is indeed reads, is indeed sort of the traditional way of reading this text, then you come to the conclusion where Yosef is trying to, is saying, when this, enacting this, Law, this imperative would put your life in danger. Then of course you don't enact it, right? Meaning if ignoring the Jewish king is a dangerous thing to do, which we're assuming it is, then you then you don't do that. So it's a tremendous a limitation on the on the Mishnah, which you could have unfettered, right, Un, unfettered by reality. You could Mishnah have said. Jewish king, non Jewish king, king of France, president of the US, what do I care? In front of Malach Machiach lachim, in front of the king, the one who bestows all other kings right, with, with kingship, so you don't interrupt at all. So and this, that matches your point as well, which is that right, Yossi seems to be saying um, that in order, in order to take this text, which is like somewhere between, between narrative and law, and actually make it into applied in real life, you have to put limitations on it. Maybe those limitations, by the way, were inherent. Right in the Mishnah. He's
1: for sure presenting them as inherent, whether or not they were actually there. So that's, hard, that's hard
0: to say. I mean, you could make a strong case that they are inherent. You could make a strong case that they are inherent in the text, and it just says king. It doesn't say Jewish king, non-Jewish king, right? So how would you get Jewish king, non-Jewish king out of there? How could you claim it's not a rereading, but actually just a, totally uh, an explanation of the authorial intent? By understanding, by claiming that that line in the Mishnah was meant in its original redaction, was meant in some sort of narrative context, i.e. it's hyperbolic. No one ever said, no. we never meant, get yourself killed. What we meant was, we were trying to express something about the focus um, and the COVID Roche quote unquote, which is necessary for achieving a proper prayer posture. And we expressed this by by saying as follows, even if a king says hello, you ignore that king. Now, if you asked us, wait a minute, if a king comes with a sword, they're going to kill me. If I don't respond, you want me to just ignore that king? The mission would say, no. You're not listening. I'm talking in like narrative, hyperbolic terms, right? When it comes to actually how to do it, of course you, of course you uh, should say hello to whoever will, otherwise put your life in danger, okay? And that's that may be what's happening. What's happening here? Now, if we skip for a moment to where it says the next paragraph, our rabbis taught we have yet another. Uh, text. This is another Hasidic text, as it were. Right? Our Mishnah already had masse Hasidim Harisholim, the early Hasidim. Here's a story of one particular Hasid, a certain pious man, as it says. Watch what happens here. Go on, Misha.
1: Um, wait, where are we at? Our, our rabbis taught. The our next text. It's related that once, when a certain pious man was praying by the roadside, an officer came by and greeted him, and he did not return the greeting.
0: Okay. So that's thus far. It's not entirely clear from the text at this point, is this a Jewish you know, officer, or a non-Jewish officer, Right? The, in some versions it, say, it uses the term hegemon, right? from the, we use the word hegemony, so it's on the same root, which implies uh, usually like a Roman officer or something along those lines. So it sounds like it's a non-Jewish, a non-Jewish officer who's coming by, although granted it's not entirely clear. In any way, the fact he doesn't, he doesn't listen to him sounds all well and good. That's what the Meshach said to do. But he's a chassid. <laughs> so is he doing that because he's a Hasid or is he doing that because he's a Jew and that's, that's the regular halacha not entirely clear so Michelle said I don't know let's continue
1: so he waited for him till he had finished his prayer
0: Right. Like, so the, the soldier instead of killing him said let me just wait he waits he finishes his prayer go on
1: when he had finished his prayer he said to him fool it is not written in your law only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently and it is also written take ye therefore good heed unto your souls keep when going. I greeted you why did you not return my greeting Keep going. If I had cut off your head with my sword, who would have demanded satisfaction for your blood from
0: me? Okay. This by the way the translation from here, some of it I translated myself, this is from the Sonsino translation, I am not wont to speak in these and these. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's hard to understand the original Aramaic, but in any event he says to him, as uh, non-Jewish figures do in the Babli often, he cites scripture back at him, an interesting phenomenon on its own, and his basic claim is, don't you know Chumash? don't you know that, we're, that you're supposed to take care of your life that that's one of the mitzvot to preserve your to preserve your life by ignoring me who would have uh, demanded recompense for your blood who would have you know charged me uh, uh, made, rendered me guilty for killing you you're supposed to respond right who possibly could have, could have saved you in other words what are you thinking not answering a hegemon when he comes by with a sword you say hello what were you thinking okay and he tells him it's from your own text itself it teaches you that it's a good question so he says to him
1: Be patient, and I will explain to you. If, he went on, you had been standing before an earthly king, and your friend had come and given you greeting, would you have returned it? No, he replied. And if you had returned his greeting, what would they have done to you? They would have cut off my head with the sword, he replied. Which
0: is known for the rabbis as uh, specifically uh, Rabbinic Roman method of execution we you know that from other areas because they're not sure if they can behead the rabbis because it might be considered following in the ways of the, of the Gentiles to behead anyway it's a different it's a different issue but anyway so you see him on the one hand he's talking to this Roman guy who's using Roman you know execution methods on the other hand he's learning with him like he has like his chavruta right he's like and give him a in a second right he says to him
1: have we not here then an apportiori argument
0: it's a kabah right if A all the more so B right
1: You would have behaved in this way when standing before an earthly king who is here today and tomorrow in the grave, how much more so I when standing before the supreme king of kings, the Holy One, blessed be he, who endures for all eternity?
0: Forthwith. The officer accepted his explanation and the pious man returned home in peace. The end. Okay, So this is a little Hasidic story from circa, I don't know where, 200 CE, the land of Israel. Okay, it's a rich story. It's a lot happening here. What it just what 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 jumps out of you from this text? What's interesting to you? What questions does it raise? What strikes you? Yeah. Okay. So we kind of what 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 what's like what's the genre? What's the genre of this text? Says Nisa, I mean, and if I can paraphrase, meaning this would this actually played out this way. He'd say to him, Call the home there, right? All the more. So he said to him, uh oh, Good point, and he would have forthwith mm-hmm. left it left it in peace. That seems that seems odd. Yeah, was yeah, it Ari? It's like, yeah.
2: the, like he knows the officers. He knows the written Torah, but not the oral
0: Torah. Mm, interesting. So this actually would make sense because the oral Torah is called. I never thought about that. It's called the story. On. it's called the mystery of the, uh, of the of of the Israelites. So it's a lot of stuff about that, and out to write it down and pass it on. So that's an interesting thing to think about, right? Is this idea that they know the written Torah but not the oral Torah? That's, 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 that's something to think about. Yeah?
1: Right. It could be that it's also bumming it down an even more liberal notch in the sense that you've now gone from king to only a non-Jewish king to now an officer. Meaning, depending on what hegemon is, but it seems to be taking greater liberties with what exactly is excusable or not.
0: Right. Well, here but, but, but no, here it but about. That's but, the point, right? right? So it's interesting that, I mean, Stu points out that it's an officer or a king, etc. I mean, part of the reason I'm making it, a, making it an officer, I think, is it there's a literary point, because that way you can say to him, you have a king, don't you? Right? He says, yeah, I have a king. I have my general. And you say, well, you know, wouldn't you have listened to him? Wouldn't you have, inter- you know, if, would you, if you had been talking to him and someone else came by, would you shift focus? Of course not. He'll kill me. So you're standing in front of the eternal one all the more so. So it serves that literary, literary function. Yeah.
2: It seems like there are four here, here in terms of okay. the power. You have God. Yeah. You have the king. Yeah. have the king. Then you have the officer. And the student is.: be and it's like a discussion between two, the in the middle, mm-hmm. and the you know the officer that is just a little above. Uh, he wants to impose his uh, his power. He says, "No, but you know, I can circumvent you. Go even above you right. and your king to the biggest king." So,
0: right. So that's a very good point. Cause it's always an interesting question. What. How should I say? It's two interesting. One interesting phenomenon is when people of relatively low rank impose <laughs> impose that rank on anyone who's at least below them. That just happens every day. That's interesting. Um, but the second interesting thing is the usage of submissive language to God, not to uh, render a person to a submissive personality in general, but to render one into a bold personality, which is kind of what you're saying. By which I mean to say, when one's focus is on the eternal, etc., then one is able to face lesser i.e. human right? this worldly authorities with impunity and that's actually something very important to realize that sometimes you have like a Kiva Ben-Halala not for now but certain rabbinic sages who are known for saying things like you all should look in the mirror every morning when you're brushing your teeth and say I am but from a putrid drop and I will you know and I will go to the grave with worms and all that kind of business and you're like oh this is like like a non-self-esteem manual I understand what you're trying to do and then you realize that this is the same guy who elsewhere in the Mishnah is the one when everybody else in the world was saying to him was saying one thing refused to refused to sort of bend his spine and also called a Yachid it it's a famous example of a Yachid of somebody who held a lone opinion until the day of his death um, so I you, you assume partly what allowed him to do that or at least was correlated in some manner maybe not causality but association was his Theology. It's interesting. It's an interesting point, for sure. But what I do and I know, and this kind of Stu caught himself on, is in a way you have like the Mishnah, which says, right? Even if a king is uh, a king is is asking you, uh, how are you? You know, supposed to ignore that king. Mm-hmm. Then you have a Yosef said, oh, unless it's going to get you killed, right? So he pulls back. If you will, he says, now when it comes to the normative law, like that's not in real life, buddy. And then what's the function of the Smat Hasid? Well. It doesn't say it explicitly, but if, you, if we were all to assume that we were chassidim, if we were all to assume that we're supposed to follow suit, then it sounds like we should we sh- go back to the Mishnah. Right? It sounds like even if someone's next to us who has the ability to kill us, we're supposed to ignore them. So in a way it like reinstates the Mishnah. Is following? So in other words, we have the Mishnah that says, ignore king. Right? Rabbi Yosef, step two, says, that's nuts, <laughs> don't ignore king who presents danger. And then the story, step three, by implication, but not explicitly, by implication, goes back to step one. Right? The story says, well, actually there's a chassid who just followed the mishnah kipshutah, who just followed the mishnah's uh, injunction just like straight up, and you know, he forthwith went home in peace. You know? It's wonderful. Now it doesn't say it explicitly, I want to make that point. It says, you know, there's once this Hasid who did this who did this, right? He ignored this hegemon guy, this soldier, and he went home all well and good. Does it say, and therefore the law is, you know, like no, it doesn't go that far. So you have here a juxtaposition of law and narrative, if you will, to use those terms. And the narrative is not just by any Jew like you know any of us, but a Hasid, so who's called by the Mishnah. So we know, as the omniscient narrator tells us, that this guy is pious, right? We know that. And tells us that he did okay, but it doesn't it doesn't take you to the next step, which says okay, so where does it leave us? It doesn't go that far. It just like ends off, and then moves on. So you're left with a juxtaposition of law now, where the narrative clearly bumps up against the law. By the law here, I mean the Yosef statement, right? The jo- or Joseph statement, not the Mishnah. And the Rabbi Joseph statement uh, clearly pushes in a different direction, but doesn't doesn't go all the way with it. Now, yeah, I think the third point. Yeah. No, you you said yeah.
1: nothing in terms of what this means for us. It would seem to me that what this means for us is that we shouldn't answer our cell phones while we're davening. Mm. You know, I mean, this is the common situation that people run into is the interruption. Mm. You know, I see people with Bluetooth in the morning minions.
0: Interesting. You're you talking know. to a shul rabbi, so this, okay. is, uh, this is these are the concerns, right. yeah. You
1: know, but th- but this is what we do. We interrupt our <coughs> our to answer a phone. Well, clearly not. Right. Even, th- not, not even marginally <coughs> close to that. No, because this is. Right. And
0: of course, we're not going to do that. There's actually right. there's actual halachot right. about that. Yeah. I was
1: just sort of looking at where we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: How do we infer that he did good because it says he's high?
0: Yeah, so you ask, a good, you ask a good question. You are right. I'm assuming, it's an excellent question. Can I prove to you that the text thinks that what this chassid did was like laudatory? No, I can't prove it to you. The fact that he is called a chassid is somewhat helpful, but not foolproof, because, you know, so what? It's also, but I think the fact that he goes that he lives and the guy accepts it and they go home in peace is what I'm basing myself off of. I would have hoped that if, like, the, if, the, if the redactor didn't like what he did, there'd be some intervention. You know, there'd be some moment. But your point's well taken. You're right. I can't prove it to you in this story yet. I can't prove it to you that the Hasid's uh, story is as a war normative, right? It's meant to be, is an exemplar from here. It's a very good point. It's a very good point.
1: Right,
0: right. It's a, good, it's a very good point. Yeah, Michelle, is that a hand? Or? Yeah. Um, are
1: we supposed to think of Rabbi Joseph's, like, law opinion and the next one is like alright
0: it's probably direct it should be that should that the one that yeah the thing is it, d- it doesn't directly oppose it you know okay. so it, if I remember correctly Ray Joseph's opinion actually is comes down to the law I <laughs> think <laughs> in the code very Joseph's, Joseph's opinion stands so I don't think in this context it's meant to push against or Joseph and minimize it yeah they, they, they rule like it so good question yeah um, I think
2: the story does imply that he, he did well because everything uh, is usually to very fearful of God as we feel like in front of you uh, know, in front of an enemy, something. And I think there's a very interesting intertwining between the law and the narrative uh, which kind of speaks of a very, very difficult balance that Jews have been um, put in during the whole for a uh, time more difficult than now. Where on the one hand, uh, you are given exception to rules so that you can be safe, mm-hmm. such as this or, you know, mm-hmm. other ones. like the like not not really like that right? This on the other hand, and, and on the and on the other hand, in order to kind of encourage people to kind of stand up for their you know their belief and not and not kind of like bow um, mm-hmm. to you know, you know? Um, these stories that, that that speak of like heroes and you know this resonates very much with the Hanukkah in a of way for me, despite the distance, going the Yeah, the earlier so this and that kind of showing you like. Yeah. No,
0: thank you. I did no. to, to interrupt. I was to say before I move on that as far as I know, the earliest reference I know since you mentioned Chanukah, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, the earliest reference that I know to Hasidim, I'm sure there's more, happened to only, is from the book of Maccabees. Because in the book of Maccabees, the, book of, book of Maccabees um, the Hasidim, as they're so called, they're called the Hasidim, are the ones who won't fight back on the Sabbath. So that's interesting, right? Right then. Once again, you know, those are also people who are willing to put themselves at risk, right? Now clearly, normative halakha, as you probably know, pushed back against that, um, but that's a whole interesting thing. So that's, that's, an, that's an interesting curiosity. Like the history of the, the, the f- sort of a philological investigations of the term chassid or chassidim would be, be interesting. Also, chassid means, by the way, in, in Tanakh, is an interesting question. I mean, lots of things to say here, we only have 15 minutes, but yeah.
1: So who are the chassidim Akronim?
0: We don't know this. There's no such term. I know what you're saying. I don't know the chasinim ishonim were, nor do I know terms where they say those are the shonim and the acharonim doesn't get there. We don't have it there. So, there's somebody in the, in the old distant past, you know? But and
2: no, beyond that, it's
1: not <laughs> like an Ashkenaz. Chassid Ashkenaz, way.
0: Okay, no, 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 no. He's not. That. He, I think what you mean by that thing is when it says Chassidim <laughs> Yeshonim, you mean that implies the Achronim, yes. yeah. i us say that. Okay. Yeah. So there's no. I don't know if any <laughs> text says <in> the <laughs> Chassid Achronim. As Zohar points out, throughout history, there's been different chassi, different groups call themselves Chassidim. Chassidim Ashkenaz. The medieval period in Germany in the 17th, 18th century Chassidim. Tons to say, anyway. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's just move on because we don't, we don't have much time and I want to show you another cool thing. It, the same Gemara, right? I'm cutting and pasting a little bit, but the same idea. The second part was, even if a snake is, round, is wound round his foot, he should not break off, meaning he should continue his prayer even if a nachash, even if a, a nachash is wrapped around, his, wrapped around his heel. Okay? By the way, already your little spider senses should be going off, right? Snake, heel, Genesis, chapter 3, etc. It's so, all right, and you'll see that even more, right? There's something about facing God and a snake biting at your heel, which should already, you know, besides Achilles' heel, but in terms of this tradition, it right, should already put your senses off. And it says as follows. Um, our rabbis taught. So they'd already, you know, there's another little story. Um, do you want to? Sure. Good. Yeah. Our rabbis taught. In a third place, there was
2: one solicitor
0: so this is a Sansino translation the Hebrew is, ar- ar- is an arod ayin, resh, vav, dalet you actually have the Hebrew on the page ayin, resh, vav, dalet I don't know, it's a lizard or it's a serpent type of thing it's something close enough to a nakash to a snake that they put it in here Okay. so don't think of a lizard per se think of something akin to a serpent Okay. fine so is a, a lizard a service to come and injure people uh oh, that's not good so they come they came and told Rabbi Mendoza, Hey, there's this lizard guy who's who's biting anybody. Okay, and Mendoza I'll talk to you about more in a few minutes. Is known as a Hasid. He's known as a Hasid. He is one of these rabbinic, sort of like extra rabbinic figures. By which I mean, he's one of the rabbis, but he also like has he also is like a Superman. You know, he like he does these, he does these funny things even in the mission itself. You guys learn this right? and someone else, so you learn about him in the Mishnah, right? He prays, and he can tell by how his prayer is going who if the people he's praying for are going to live or die. He just like he prays, and he says, Ah, oh, I feel it. That person who I'm praying for is going to live. Ah, oh, I feel it. That person is going to die. He has like a special channel, right, uh, up there. So he's a special guy, not a stam and the other guy. Yeah, So what happens with him? He said to them.
2: He said to them, show me its hole. You're going
0: to say with pathos, right? Show me its hole. He says, yes. Okay, go on. They showed him There you prison, go, yeah.
2: And he put his heel over the hole, and the lizard came out and bit him, and it died. And it, it
0: died, died. haha! <laughs> 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 not him, but
1: it died. It died.
2: Okay. <laughs> he put it on his shoulder
1: and brought it to the vapor Where else would you bring it, right? <laughs> bring
0: it to the yeah. A dead serpent. Yeah. It See, my sons,
1: it is not the lizard that kills, it is
2: sin that kills. On that occasion, maybe. Woe to the man who the but to the
0: Quote and quote. That was an excellent recital. Good for you. Good job. <laughs> now, this is a cool story and it's funny and it's it's like intriguing. Um, what's it what's it doing here?
2: The exception of rule. How so? Because because of the punchline at yeah. the end don't think that you can pull this off. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Mendoza, you know he was
0: so on, on the one hand says so Stu, if you read the last line you focus that it always it always depends like where you put the stress marks you know where you bold and ital- italicize and underline right if you read the last line it says woe unto the lizard which very which, which 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 meets do that right ie but if he meets you woe unto you right so on the one hand it takes this cool story and puts it out of the reach of our normal orbit right
1: the normal, normal orbit, feel orbit. Feel mm-hmm. at all
0: so out of the normative orbit, because it's probably need Mendoza okay? Now, that, and then Stu says as well, it's also interesting, it's not about, it's not like, you know, people are praying and then it bites him, right? It gets much broader, right? They're just like living their lives and they step on the hole, and or the, the snake comes after them, the serpent thingy, that road, and, and bites them, so that's, that's true as well. What else interests you? What else is, what else is this doing? I mean, there's an obvious way of pushing against what Stu said, right? Stu focused on, which is not again, no no offense, Stu, but right? There's an obvious way of pushing against it, of course. What's that? If you apply
2: it to to the situation of prayer, then it's just saying that. It's
0: saying follow Mishnah, right?
2: Yeah, I'm sorry.
0: no, you're on it. You're on it. Mir is doing well, right? Yeah. What well, Meir is saying, I know Mir really deeply now. So Meir, Meir, is saying, I think, is that this is exactly this is this is a an anecdote, if you were, if you will, which illustrates that you know the law of the Mishnah. Is that, yeah. Is that right? It's like, a, it's, like it's also like comfortable, right? Yeah.
2: It's like well, if there's a if there's a snake, it has nothing to do with. It has to do with the situation. It's not really
0: to do with the with the with the snake being um, dangerous. It has to do with you. And ah. you if somebody gets bitten by a snake dies, then it's like their own It's a statement about the not about the poison snake. Correct. It's actually a very big, big very big statement, right? It says, says you're if I Take me here and jump with it and run with it, right? Says, what, what the story does is takes the Mishnah, right, and says why even if why even if a Nachash is wrapped around you, right? Because it's not really about the Nachash ultimately anyway, right? It's really about you know where do you stand? Who are you, right? Ultimately. Okay. Now I'll say, let me say two things and I'll take it's Ari, that's your name, right? So yeah. So you, let me say two things and I'll take Ari's point, which is that w- one one thing is that you know again this doesn't say it doesn't make this into an explicitly normative statement, right? It's not like saying, okay, all Jews, so guess what, you should become like, you know, snake handlers because there's no problem, like they mm-hmm. won't kill you, it doesn't go that far. But it definitely does push up um, against uh, death phobia, death fear, right, it definitely pushes up against it re- pushes up against such a fear and it reframes the Mishnah, right, why isn't it that even if a nachash is wrapped around you, you should ignore it, Well, now it doesn't seem to be only because, only because, you're supposed to be so focused on the king of kings, etc., But also because you really have nothing to fear if you are without, without sin. Again, it's hyperbolic, right? No one rules off of this, but it's, it's there nonetheless. That's one thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that, just a note, which may be obvious to you, and I already hinted at this, this is clearly a midrash, if you will, on, on Genesis 3. Right? There's too many coincidences here. There's a snake in heel and death and sin. So what actually kills you? That's an interesting story, right? What does it mean to die right now? So this, this story says, you know, what actually—it's not even the poison. It's not the, it's not the snake that killed it. It's the sin that kills. And I don't—we don't have time to really delve into that. But it's, in terms of like law, narrative, and piety, like this legal narrative text is a midrash itself on a narrative text—the beginning of Genesis, which opens up the Chumash, which has legal stuff, and it all circles, circles on itself. Yeah, right?
2: Uh, just one thing, when you read the Mishnah, there are yeah. three parts. Yes. The first part seems to apply to everybody. Any of them, Everybody should predict yeah. yeah. Then it says something about the Hasidim Rishamim. Yeah. They were special because they started one hour earlier. Right. And then, this third part, it's not clear from the Mishnah whether it applies. There's like the part that says, uh, even if the snake comes. You know it, right. This thing applies to everybody. like.
0: Clause one
2: or, just or clause two?
0: Yeah. So this is w- yeah.
2: So the narrative seems to resolve this by saying, okay, it's only somebody as, as special as Ravi I
0: Anilavendosta mean, that he could afford not to care about. Yeah, this. but l- let me push back. I hear what you're saying, and I had the, when I learned this first, I had the same question, which is, is clause three right? Is it is it within the mode of clause one or clause two? You're saying, right? Part one and part two? So. On the one hand, yeah, you can see the narratives are all talking in narrative sense, right, about Clause 3, so it sounds like they're all hyperbolic, and all about Chassidim. And there's two problems with that. One is there of Yosef, for example, where Joseph, when he said it only applies to kings, like right, Jewish kings and uh, non-Jewish kings, he's already reading Clause 3 in normative terms and talking to everybody, because he's making halakhism. That's, 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 that's number one. Number two is the grammatical point I opened up with, which is that when you say, et cetera, Lo yishivenu. De- it it doesn't doesn't say you know lo he It's not descriptive. It's prescriptive. So I would have preferred if we're going to be talking about the Kasidim You'd be descriptive. But the, so that's, that's my pushback. But nonetheless, I still hear your. I mean, your point is still there. Now, one final thing about this story, and maybe we have time for for a little bit more, is guess what? This story about this that this um, about uh, about uh, which talks about talks about Rabbi Chanina Ben Dosa. So. Uh, so, in the uh, Tosefta, which is a parallel to the Mishnah, some of you learned yesterday with me. Right? So, in the Tosefta, they actually have the following line. They used to say about Rechanina Bendosa, you don't have this on your sheets, I'm reading, I'm telling you. They used to say about Rechanina Bendosa that when he prayed, that he was praying, and a snake wrapped itself around him, and he did not stop his prayer, nonetheless. And then his students went to the snake hole and found the snake dead etc so again they once found is once praying a snake wrapped itself up around his leg but he ignored it went on with his day later that day the students who saw this go to the known snake hole and lo and behold the snake is dead ah. so this is again clearly a parallel to our text but there's some important distinctions one he's praying right um, one he's praying um, and Two, the fact that he's praying, moving to point two, which is that that already is much closer to the line of the Mishnah. by what you I mean to say that the Mishnah's abstracted normative ruling goes back to your point, abstractive normative ruling about like you know everybody shouldn't stop seems to be based on or related to in some way the actual event of a Hasid. So once again, what is law? What is narrative? When does the law come from the narrative? Narrative from the law? Where does piety play in? Is uh, an interesting, interesting web. We can't fully decode here, but it's clear that uh, according to Seta, right, it seems like that line in the Mishnah is referring to a Hasid, that line 3. It's talking about Rechanina Mendoza. Which works, by the way, because in chapter 5, in, chapter, in, in the end of chapter, thanks, in the end, excuse me, the 5, in the end of, uh, of chapter, in the end of that chapter, you have, um, yeah, at the end of this chapter, right, you have Rechanina Mendoza at the end of the chapter. And in the Mishnah, it may refer to him obliquely in the beginning, if that makes sense to you. Yeah.
2: Doesn't the story weaken the fourth commission Commissioner? I mean, if snakes are not really scary in are scary, then what does it mean to say don't interrupt your fear even if a snake comes? So how about snakes?
0: That important? No, I was telling you. I was telling you that even if, even if a, I mean, yeah, if a snake would come right now, even <laughs> even if even if a snake comes, which we all think of as dangerous, does the story even such a thing? You shouldn't stop because ultimately, even that is not dangerous.
2: But well, now I know they're not dangerous. They are. You mean circle back and itself? Right no, but the first. T- right.
0: Okay. I hear you. I hear you. It's
1: dangerous you.
0: Me. to me, be dangerous to you. Right. Right. I hear your point. I hear your point. I hear your point. Now, one more. We only have a few more minutes, so we'll do one more text. And I let you. I left you. I knew we wouldn't do all these. I'm not crazy, but uh, I thought maybe you could take it home and see what you think. Um, and I left my email on the top in case, in the first page, if you want to, you know, be in touch about it, or just come back to dushan. we'll <laughs> I'll talk about it in person. Anyway, this is a mission of a Baba Bhattra. We actually learned this chapter last summer in our in our June program um, this chapter in Baba Batra which it deals about laws of good citizenship which is an appropriate uh, theme for tonight of our responsibilities towards the other in our environment so the this is an amazing short story as Moshe Havel professor once called it um, it goes as follows the mission tells us on page uh, 7b in Baba Batra it says as follows a resident of a courtyard can be compelled by the other people who live in that courtyard, I'm paraphrasing, to you know contribute to uh, what they call here a porter's lodge, or rather call a gatehouse um, and a door for the courtyard. Meaning as follows: Let's assume we're all neighbors, okay, and we live in a cul-de-sac or something like that. So at the entrance to the cul-de-sac, they'd have what they called a beta uh, char which means a, literally a gatehouse. Meaning it's a place for uh, a guard to sit and in. An serves as an obstacle between us, our little community here, and them, right? The public. Okay? That's what it is. It's a a gate. Gated communities we call them. So the Mishnah says that, let's say Yochebe doesn't know, sorry but you're right next to me, let's say Yochebe doesn't want to pay, you know, pay up and contribute her taxes to that gatehouse. Why not? Not said. I don't know. She, she She had a bad day. She doesn't like gated communities on principle. She, uh, whatever reason, maybe she'd rather spend her money on Starbucks, whatever it is, we can force her, compel her, if she wants to live amongst us, to pay for that. Okay, this is in the list of Mishnayot about such things, right? What neighbors can compel one another to do. What does it mean to live together is what it's about. Okay. Fine, so if you just read this Mishnah without going forward, it sounds like, and this is at least where the, the Gemara assumes, it sounds like a gatehouse is probably a good thing. Right? Meaning, it'd be hard to believe that the Mishnah would tell us, you all compel somebody to do something evil, that'd be hard to imagine, right, from its own perspective. So it must be the Mishnah thinks that gatehouses are a good thing. Which means that it's a legitimate, maybe even a laudatory goal for members of a community to place a physical barrier between them, us and them, Our, uh, us and everybody on the street. Now why would that be legitimate? I don't know, uh, security and privacy, apparently these are like Rights, if you will, or if not right, they are okay things to, uh, okay you know, needs or concerns, etc. That's what it seems to imply. And that seems to be the halakha based on the Mishnah. And then you get to a very, very short story which says this follows in the Gemara. It says, um, it says, go ahead, Dochab, if you don't mind. Okay, this
2: would seem to show uh, that a porter's lodge is an improvement. Like we
0: just said, right? That the Mishnah seems to imply that it's a good thing. The, Hebrew, the Aramaic is maluta. I probably wouldn't have an improvement, I would say, is like a good thing, right? However...
2: Yet, how can this be, saying that there was a certain pious man
1: with whom Elijah used to converse until he made a port lodge, oh. after which he did not converse with him anymore. Okay,
0: so you know, you guys, you guys all know that, right? Remember Elijah, I used to talk with this guy, I love that throw it in there, right? So there's a lot to say about Elijah regarding Hasid stories, especially, right? Because Elijah himself is one of those characters who's like, not quite in. He's like, you know, if you want, the rabbis could claim him as one of their own, but he was a lone, you know, wolf whatever was one um, in multiple multiple respects. doesn't definitely does not do everything according to the books and a lot to say about him. But, uh, um, but, locally, we have this Hasid who Elijah, I used to talk with him as we all know, until he built a Beit HaShar. Once he built the Beit HaShar, Elijah never spoke to him again. Now, why not? Elijah couldn't get in. Yeah, you know they say a lot of times a poor person, right? By the way, Elijah also likes doors. In case you didn't know, right? It's not only at the Pesach Seder, which is probably what we all think about that, right? But uh, we have them in where Elijah wasted the entrance to caves and doors. He lived in a cave, if you remember? By the way, in King. So it's not, not, that's not, 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 such a coincidence. It's not such a surprise in any event. Maybe he's a liminal character if you like that kind of language. In any event, um, in any event, so it says here that uh, he wouldn't come in. Rashi says he didn't come in because. Once he built the gatehouse, they couldn't hear the cries of the poor outside. That's what he says. And then Elijah said, "Well, I'm not coming anymore either." So maybe it's because of what Milas is saying, that like, and he was one of them, or maybe it was sort of like, "I'm not going to associate with you anymore, right?" If that happens. Right? Interesting part of that that Hasidim had Elijah speaking with them. That seems to be like, you know, if you're a Hasid, that's what Elijah speaks with you. Until um, that's a default status. In any event, here's a, here's the point I'm going to end with. Okay. Until based on the pattern we've seen now and the stories we've seen, you have like a law and a narrative of Hasid pushes back against it and challenges it. Very nice. And until now, we should have been like so the law stands, but it's like it's uh, subverted a little bit, right, by the narrative. That's what we read it till now. But here, the Gemara goes on. The Gemara says, Ah, there's no contradiction. How could be a good thing? Doesn't it stop a lodge from talking to you? In this one case, the lodge, the gatehouse, is on the inside of the courtyard, and the other is on the outside, i.e. It depends when the gatehouse when the little structure is inside of the walls of the courtyard of the cul-de-sac of the gated community that's one ruling when it's outside of it that's another ruling i'm being vague because the medievals differ as to which one is which which one's good which one's bad but that's not from us might, i mean if you want you can look it up but my point is simply this and i'll close is that here you see the gemara itself the Talmud, on me the Taman itself Says you have the, there's a legal statement and then a sort of chassid chassid story statement and it forces a redefinition of the law itself and that's how it, that's how it comes down eventually right it forces a redefinition of the law itself because now we just discovered that not all beit not all gatehouses porter lodges are good depends where they are and we know that based on the story about Elijah speaking to a chassid so in conclusion with our with our question of like to what, what's the relation between these piety stories and law narrative like is it is it, is it meant to be somehow exemplary and normative? Is it, is it totally a different realm? Are there two Torahs? There's like our Torah and there's the Hasid, Hasid Torah. And there are medievals who think that Pirkei Avot was written only for so that, 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 that that's, that's the Torah of the Hasidim. It's including the rest of it, but that also. Others think, no, that's for everybody. It's an interesting question. Um, but this Gemara, I think, pushes very hard against the claim that you can clearly distinguish between the two at least with regards to Hasid stories. The Hasid stories seem to have an effect on the way we all live our lives and not just fellow, fellow Hasidim. That's something to think about. And uh, I think especially for, for, for tonight, we think about going above and beyond. Um, sometimes Hasid stories can motivate us to do that and that's part of their value.